This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 to 1. You can listen to the whole thing live on DAB Radio, on Smart Speaker, online at times.radio, or you can listen back to the show uh, in its entirety on the Times Radio app, where we just bring you the very best bits. Our main thing today, because it's a Wednesday, it's PMQ's Unpacked, where we pause the action live from the House of Commons and from Boris Johnson's front room as he dialed in uh, via Zoom. Uh, but first, uh, as ever, we kick off with the columnists' panel. On a Wednesday, it's always Alice Thompson and John Kampf. Now, one of the things we talked about was whether or not Keir Starmer should let Jeremy Corbyn back into uh, sit as a Labour MP in the House of Commons. About 10 minutes after we stopped talking about it, Keir Starmer announced it. For now, at least, he wasn't going to let Jeremy Corbyn back in. Uh, that's news for you. It just comes at you thick and fast as his days. Anyway, this is Alice Thompson and John Kampfner. So uh, Keir Starmer's got in a, in a bit of a predicament uh, so far. Uh, for people who don't remember, a few weeks ago, the Equality and Human Rights Commission report came out, which found the Labour Party had broken the Equality Act three times its handling of anti-Semitism. Jeremy Corbyn responded with a statement uh, claiming that uh, the scale of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party had been exaggerated for political purposes. He was then suspended from the Labour Party as a Labour Party member. Last night, he was reinstated after putting out a statement saying, nobody thinks it's been exaggerated. Uh, however, he's not actually back uh, with the Labour whip, sitting as a Labour MP in the House of Commons. And Keir Starmer, we had David Blunkett on earlier, saying Keir Starmer shouldn't, there's no rush. What do you think, John? Should Keir Starmer allow Jeremy Corbyn back in as a Labour MP? God, I mean, I really scratch my head about this, Matt, because every time Labour should be focusing unequivocally on the complete dog's breakfast of the COVID response, the thing we're going to talk about, uh, which is the procurement scandals and so many else that's going things that are going wrong coming up a month to go before the final Brexit and still no deal. They shoot themselves in the foot. And I'm not a great uh, follower of internal Labour rules, but what I don't quite understand is why they needed to get the NEC, which is a party body that's always fluctuated between uh, the, the hard left and the very sort of Blairite centre and bits in between, but very, very political uh, Labour's uh, ruling management group. Why they left it to the NEC? Because one of the recommendations or requirements of the Equality and Human Rights Commission was that Labour introduce an independent panel to look at this kind of thing. 
And they could have simply done that and waited and given it to that panel. And that would have made uh, both sides, uh, that would have given them far less ammunition because at the moment uh, you have Labour, Jewish MPs and others and Jewish groups uh, screaming blue murder at this decision. And it's not going to go away, whatever happens, for as long as people doubt the processes. I suppose the thing was that the, the speed seemed to be of the essence. On the day the report came out and Keir Starmer said he accepts it in full and accepts that anti-Semitism has been a problem with the Labour Party. The fact that Jeremy Corbyn immediately responded by saying, well, it had been a little bit exaggerated. Um, I suppose you needed to act. But of course, then, you're right, it was left to the NEC and not the Labour leadership because Keir Starmer was keen to say that he wasn't interfering in disciplinary matters, which were for the party organisation, not him as uh, uh, as leader, which all gets a bit uh, complicated. Alice, what do you think? I mean, it's difficult, this, isn't it? Because I had a message from somebody who works in the Labour Party uh, this morning who said, I really hope that one day we never have to discuss this man uh, ever again. Um, and I suppose if if Jeremy, if Keir Starmer lets him in, sits as a Labour MP, he can probably drift off into some form of irrelevance. If he, if he makes a martyr of him, he, he risks, you know, keeping this row going even longer, doesn't he? Well, my problem is, is what the country feels. So they won't, uh, they won't be interested in the nuances of it. But what they desperately need at the moment is a leader who makes up his mind, who's decisive, who has his party under control, who doesn't dither uh, or prefer fudges and who doesn't constantly make U-turns. And I think after having all that with Boris Johnson, the one thing they want in Keir Starmer is someone who is very decisive and looks like he's in charge. And I think that's what he's in danger of losing. You have to be really careful about that because the, you know, the, the, he is up against a man who is... Um, very bad at making up um, his mind about things and is also very bad at keeping his party on board. So that's all Keir Starmer really needs to do on that side. And then at the same time, he needs to be opposing the government and he's not doing enough of that. There's too many internal disputes, I think. Uh, he sounds very rational and plausible at um, PMQs, but he's not landing enough of the blows, I think, on the, opposition, on the government at the moment as the opposition. And I think he needs to do far more of that. And I think this is a distraction, but it's also shown that he's not in control of his party yet. And it was extraordinary that actually, I think there was even a bit of an uptick in the polls after he, uh, you know, for, I know this isn't technically what happened, but for people viewing this from the outside, it looked like he'd given Jeremy Corbyn the boot. And uh, people seemed to qu quite like that, given um, uh, how, how um, popular he had become in the country. Um, John, do you think that Keir Starmer's got it in him? Uh, I mean, there doesn't seem to be a lot of risk of keeping Jeremy Corbyn out of uh, the Labour Parliamentary Party, given that uh, although there was a lot of noise and, and moaning from the likes of uh, Richard Bergen and Diane Abbott, none of them sort of <laughs> resigned in protest. It doesn't, you know, it's quite quick, noticeable how quickly the sort of Corbyn lieutenants all sort of drained away. Um. Well, I think it's a wider question. I don't think it's just about the Corbyn affair. It's it's also about to what degree has Keir Starmer really taken to leadership? Uh, he's been quite good at prime minister's questions, at probing in a very sort of that, that massively overused word forensic that everybody ascribes to him way, sort of loyally barrister type type way, which he kind of goes for little individual points and and pushes them. But does he have that that cut through? all across politics, um, which is an absolute requirement. It can be manifested in different ways, but it's an absolute requirement of leadership. 
And I do think it's been very difficult for him. He's taken over during COVID. Everything's been sort of uh, down the line. He hasn't been able to do big speeches, big initiatives around the country. So in many ways, the circumstances are hard for him. But even in terms of um, going after this government, yeah, Labour's polling is, is getting better and the government's is getting worse. But it's not nearly as as dramatic as it should be, given how badly this government has performed. And I think Starmer needs to be asking himself much more searching questions. Obviously, um, the, the class division in politics used to be that the Tories were for the Toffs and uh, Labour were for um, the working class. Actually, if you look at the polls, it, that has uh, flipped um, uh, quite markedly. Um, but, um, Alice, you write in your, your column today about how uh, class is one of the big divides when it comes to coronavirus as well. Yeah, so we've, um, you know, the whole country has started watching uh, the full series of The Crown again. Well, not the whole country, but it's vast amounts <laughs> um, with Bake Off. Uh, because we are all shut away in our um, homes uh, during lockdown. And I think um, that is all about class and nuance, and it's all about passing the moral test and whether you understand what you're supposed to do when you go stalking or fishing. Or... And it's all, that's all quite entertaining and also quite grim in the sense that Britain is still a class sort of society that is riven by class divides and what you do and don't do and all these social nuances. But actually, when it comes to corona, it's far worse because when you look at that, people who are in low-paid jobs are doing far worse with corona than people who are in higher-paid jobs, who are more likely to be in the suburbs or have larger houses, but also who can cope with being locked down, who have the finances to tide them through, and who are less likely to be in contact with other people. So if you look at all the statistics... The people who are most likely to get coronavirus are in areas that have more free school meals, more people on universal credit, um, and more people who are in um, jobs that are far worse paid or are not getting jobs at all or are losing their jobs. So there is definitely a class divide in this pandemic. And I think that's going to be very difficult for the government because Boris Johnson keeps talking about levelling up, but that was hard enough before 2020. I think now it's going to be much, much harder because things like life expectancy, which is already very starkly different in different areas of the country, is now going to become more extreme. Um, and I think they are going to have to tackle that. And they, you know, people are beginning to do it. Funnily, actually, it's more CEOs and businesses um, come together to do this than it is politicians. But you've also got the Northern Research Group of Tory MPs who realise this is happening. Yeah. So hopefully it will make a difference in the end. People will realise what's happened. But it has been very stark. I don't think people have looked at it enough. They've looked at the elderly, the young, all these different crossovers. But what they haven't looked at enough, I think, is um, the low paid versus the high paid. And there could be a political impact of this, couldn't there, John? Like I was saying, I've just looked up, actually, the most recent YouGov poll had ABC Ones, which is sort of the middle classes, upper, you know, middle and upper class, have mm. uh, got the Tories on 32% and uh, Labour on 46%. But then amongst the C2DEs, which is the working class, um, uh, it's exactly opposite. It's 47% for the Tories, uh, 31% uh, for Labour. Um, so, I mean, this could really hit Boris Johnson quite hard. And that, that is a big turnaround. You know, historically, obviously, the Labour sort of seen as more of the party of the work, working class. So, so failing to tackle this and appearing to be concerned about uh, the impact of coronavirus on um, working class and poorer families it could be politically dangerous for the Prime Minister as well. I mean, opinion polls always lag behind, um, perceptions always lag yeah. behind realities. And so 
Uh, I mean, Alice's uh, column, as ever, was very good, and the points that she was making were very good. I mean, uh, governments have dabbled in this across the piece. Gordon Brown made a, a big point of trying to relocate state institutions to medium-sized towns, particularly, uh, but not exclusively, in the north. We had George Osborne's somewhat overblown, but certainly very noticed, northern powerhouse. Um, I don't remember uh, um, Theresa May's Midlands engine um, uh, making much puff um, as, as it got, or even get, or even getting going. Um, and now we've got the whole leveling up agenda, and people are right to feel cynical. I mean, at any time, you know, just look at the basics of, and it's not just a North South thing. There are many, many pockets, or bigger than very large pockets of poverty uh, in the southeast, the southwest, uh, in rural parts. Rural poverty is is a huge. Problem, but there is so much about infrastructure in the north, about housing in the north, um, and, and other issues. And this is a, a generational. This isn't something you can fix with one political gesture. But there is. You look at COVID, and when there was that very public spat between Andy Burnham, the mayor of Manchester, and the government. Of course, there was some grandstanding by by Burnham for sure, but the government was playing hardball in terms of compensating workers in the north for uh, towns and cities being put on tier three. But as soon as the R number uh, went berserk in London and the southeast, that's when we went into national lockdown. Yeah. Or at least ha that's how it was perceived. And percep perceptions and reality are politically the same thing. And there is just something about the, the traction that London and the southeast have that the north never has had. That was Alice Thompson and John Campfin. And don't forget, you can read uh, them both on thetimes.co.uk and you can sign up for a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Still to come, PMQ's Unpacked. That's next. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Shirley. Right, let's get down to the main course. Get your teeth stuck into the big political issue of the day. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. Yeah. 
Yes, it's time for PMQ's Unpacked, where we bring you the House of Commons exchanges and pause the action uh, live to try and analyse what's going on. Tim Shipman's uh, political editor of the Sunday Times and joins me. Hi, Tim. Hi, Matthew. So, uh, interesting. Just when we thought uh, PMQ's was getting a little bit same and a bit boring, we get the novelty of the Prime Minister zooming in. As you say, what could possibly go wrong? Um, I hope uh, they've got a nice wide shot so we can keep track of the hair. That's the main consideration. He's he's got a very he's got a sort of grey backdrop uh, with the, the sort of the government with a very crest, fine ten, crest. Ten down is um, it does. It does make him look a bit pale. Yes. Um, I won't say hostage video, but it's not far off. Uh, but uh, it does also suggest he's not in his flat. He has again found the loophole, which means he can venture somewhere else within the building. Well, unless they've wheeled up a backdrop to his uh, to his flat. Remember, uh, I think it was Alok Sharma, wasn't it, who uh, zoomed in from home with. Uh, uh, business department <laughs> signs parked behind him. Um, this looks a little bit more professional than that. It's not yet wobbling. But uh, an interesting week. The Prime Minister's um, two senior aides have gone, including the guy who's in charge of his communications. It'll be very interesting to see today whether Boris Johnson takes a different approach at all and uh, emphasises slightly different things. Um, and, uh, you know, we feel like we've... Uh, you know, he's, he's doing speeches on greenery and uh, making big announcements on that sort of stuff, uh, stuff that we're told that Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane both disliked and didn't want him to announce. Um, is he going to make a, a big virtue of that stuff? Um, is this a new Prime Minister? We will see. Uh, and uh, Keir Starmer, not without his own troubles, he's, um, he's decided not to allow Jeremy Corbyn back in uh, as a Labour MP, although he is now a Labour Party member. Yes, do keep up. Um, uh, but if he hadn't done that, he would have been presenting Boris Johnson with a blooming great stick with which to beat him about the head for the next half an hour. So would Keir Starmer have done that anyway? I suspect he might have done because he's tried to draw uh, a big line in the sand on anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. But the timing of it is surely not a coincidence. What he did not want was Boris Johnson answering every question with, you've got a mess in your own party, mate, and you can't even decide what to do about, about Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, so sad as it is, it seems unlikely that Jeremy Corbyn will ever be representing Labour at the dispatch box again. That's a blow for Jeremy Corbyn fans. Um, we should also say this time next week we'll be gearing up for the spending review. It's obviously not the full-blown budget that uh, Rishi Sunak was planning, but there's an awful lot around about pressure from one side or the other. We spoke to Ben Houch and the Mayor of Tees Valley earlier about what he wanted to see out of it. There's stories about foreign aid could be cut. I'm sure we will hear from Ian Blackford uh, who will, who will, who will um, uh, challenge the Prime Minister to do something about universal credit. That's his favourite uh, thing at PMQs. Um, the trouble always with attacking Boris Johnson on spending is that Boris Johnson wants to spend just as much as everybody in the Labour Party and the SNP does. Um, the tension there is between 10 Downing Street and 11 Downing Street rather than between Tory and Labour. Um, and Boris Johnson is very happy to signal that uh, the, tap, the spending taps will continue to be turned on. OK, well, we are gearing up to hear from Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. He is in the House of Commons chamber, looking across, actually, at Jacob Rees-Mogg, who's in the uh, Prime Minister's place. Uh, let's hear from the Labour leader. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I start by sending my best wishes to the Prime Minister and all those across the country who are doing the right thing by following the rules and self-isolating? Mr Speaker, devolution in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland is one of the proudest achievements of the last Labour government. Until now, whatever our disagreements, there's been a very broad consensus about devolution. So why did the Prime Minister tell his MPs this week that Scottish devolution is, in his words, a disaster. Prime Minister. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I think 
uh, what has unquestionably been a disaster is the way in which the Scottish Nationalist Party have taken and used devolution as a as a means not to improve the lives of their constituents, not to address their uh, their health concerns, not to improve uh, education in Scotland, but constantly, and I know this is actually a point of view that is shared uh, by the right honourable gentleman who leads uh, for the opposition, uh, but constantly to campaign for the breakup of our country and to turn devolution, uh, otherwise a sound policy from which I myself personally uh, benefited by uh, when I was running London, but turned devolution into a mission uh, to break up the UK. And that, in my view, would be a disaster. If he, if he doesn't think that would be a disaster, then perhaps he could say so now. I mean, it's an interesting way of uh, talking his, um, talking himself out of the pickle he got in this week. It's not that the evolution's been a disaster, but it's that breaking up the country would be a disaster. Yeah, I mean, one, one is tempted to say that what is unquestionably a disaster is whoever arranged the sound feed for the Prime Minister, <laughs> which does make him sound like he's sort of, as you say, not just being held hostage but at the bottom of a well. Um, no, I think uh, this is interesting. I mean, in a sense, Johnson's almost answered that uh, pretty honestly. He's saying that the process of devolution has in, has has hastened the process of, of people fighting for independence. And this was the great existential row that went on when Labour did this devolution stuff originally. The argument of the people like Donald Dewar who were pushing for it was that by giving some devolution, you would actually put a stop to this push towards Scottish independence. Uh, anyone who has seen what's happened since would have to say that it has given it greater life. So in that sense... Uh, Johnson's making a, a, an honest argument. Clearly, he made a massive gaffe as well, and he shouldn't have said it, and probably he's now made it more likely that Scotland leaves as well by saying devolution doesn't work. But it's, it's certainly a, a legitimate, profound argument about whether this stuff uh, has worked at all or whether it needs to work better, and if it worked better, whether you would be able to close it down. So far, it hasn't closed down the prospect of Scottish independence. And I think he's right in saying it's encouraged it. We should also reflect, although uh, Boris Johnson's not exactly Mr Popular in Scotland, Keir Starmer and the Labour Party are hardly riding high there either. So let's go back and hear from the Labour leader. Could, 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 could I just say it's the Scottish National Party, not the Nationalist Party. Otherwise, the phones will be ringing longer than I'm so sorry. The national but not nationalist, I see. Right. We can play pedantics another time. Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, the single biggest, biggest threat to the future of the United Kingdom is the Prime Minister every time he opens his mouth on this. When the, Prime Minister, when the Prime Minister said he wanted to take back control, nobody thought he meant from the Scottish people. But the Prime Minister's quote is very clear. He said devolution has been a disaster north of the border. This isn't an isolated incident. Whether it's the internal market bill, the way the Prime Minister sidelined the devolved parliaments over the Covid response, the Prime Minister is seriously undermining the fabric of the United Kingdom. So instead of talking down devolution, does he agree that we need far greater devolution of powers and resources across the United Kingdom? Well, let's just jump in there. I mean, it was interesting that um, uh, the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, having to uh, tick the Prime Minister off. He's obviously had enough of the uh, SNP colleagues in the, in the uh, Parliament um, bending his ear about them being called the Nationalists. Yes, um, and I mean, Boris Johnson knows a bit about being a Nationalist himself, of course. Um, 
but uh, you start banding these uh, words around, they, um, people can uh, uh, take against them. I don't remember the Speaker ever intervening. I mean, for about five, year, ten years, uh, Gordon Brown used to call the Lib Dems the Liberals. The Liberals. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, much to their much to their irritation as as well. Um, once again, Keir Starmer is saying that Boris Johnson is the biggest threat to the union. Um, but yeah, the La- I mean, the Labour Party are behind the Tories in uh, in Scotland. Yeah, this is right. I mean, what what has the the, the two things that have kept. Um, uh, the union together have generally been a strong uh, uh, Labour Party um, and a uh, either the Tories not in power in London or less antagonistically in power in London. Um, uh, and this is a Prime Minister who puts backs up uh, in Scotland. Um, so Starmer's not wrong, but Starmer has an interesting line to tread because on the one hand... Um, Labour is pretty much no use uh, to keeping the union together in Scotland, uh, but Keir Starmer is going to struggle to become Prime Minister of the UK um, while uh, Labour is so weak in Scotland. So he either needs to become stronger by taking on the SNP or he needs to ally with the SNP. Um, and those are the two you know, routes he can take. And, and that defines a lot of what he says on this. OK, let's go back and see what Boris Johnson said. Mr. I mean, Mr Speaker, I think it, it is... It's, uh... Tony Blair himself, uh, the the former Labour leader, who has conceded that he did not foresee the rise of a separatist uh, party uh, in Scotland. He did not foresee the collapse of of Scottish Labour, uh, Mr Speaker. And uh, I think the right honourable gentleman is quite right. There can be uh, great advantages in devolution. And I was very proud uh, when I was running a a devolved administration in London to do things in which I passionately believed like improving public transport and fighting crime and improving housing for my constituents. And we had a great deal of success. And what disappoints me is that the Scottish National Party, Mr Speaker, and I abide by your, uh, your, your ruling on their correct name, and the Scottish National Party, Mr Speaker, is, is not engaging in that basic work. Instead, they are campaigning to break up the union, an objective that I hope uh, the leader of the opposition will repudiate. Uh, will he say so now that he opposes the breakup of the United Kingdom? Oh, well, before we uh, find out the answer to that um, question, um, Boris Johnson mentioning Tony Blair again. Yes. Was it last week or the week before? He seems to like to bring him up. I vaguely remember the, the Times data team once took all of Boris Johnson's columns and analysed them. And I th- I'm sure Tony Blair got more mentions than any other. Well, there was, there's a certain strain of, uh, of Tory uh, moderate opinion that has always been rather in awe of Tony Blair. Um, and Boris Johnson would presumably quite like to win three general elections as well. Um, but, you know, they're just playing out the argument we've just had, which is that, you know, this is a, a, a big problem and that there are many contributing factors to it. I mean, the ironic thing here in the exchange we've heard so far is that quite a lot of uh, Starmer's analysis is shared by people in Downing Street. They do think that the way to uh, preserve things may be to go to an even more federal model with even more uh, devolved power. Um uh, the problem you always get into is that um, uh, there's a, the issue of money um, and whether there's enough money in these uh, other parts of the UK um, uh, to look after themselves. Um, and if there isn't, then you have to have a formula uh, to distribute it from the centre. And that always then leaves um, the, the bits uh, at the periphery uh, asking for more cash from the centre. Um, and that's the inherent tension in all of this. Yeah, I've just looked it up. When the Times analyses columns, uh, Tony Blair cropped up 91 times, more than the total for Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron and Theresa May combined. I bet not more than Winston <laughs> Churchill. <then. laughs> right, let's go back to the comments. It, it's not a ruling, it's a matter of fact. <laughs> Of course I don't want the breakup of the Union, the United Kingdom, but if anything, if anything is fueling that breakup, it's the Prime Minister. Turning, turning now to the Prime Minister's handling of the pandemic, 
The Prime Minister is doing the right thing by self-isolating after being notified by track and trace. But does he think he would have been able to do so if, like so many other people across the country, all he had to rely on for the next 14 days was either statutory sick pay, which is £95 a week, that's £13 a day, or a one-off payment of £500, which works out at £35 a day. Prime Minister. Well, uh, it, it's good, finally, to uh, hear something from the right on gentleman praise of NHS test and trace. I think they uh, secured uh, at least one of his objectives, which keep me away from, uh, from answering his questions in, in person. Uh, what I can say to him is that uh, I believe that the package that we have in place to protect people and support people throughout this crisis has been outstanding and uh, exceptional. I think that the UK has uh, put its arms, as I've uh, said many times, around the people of this country, a £200 billion package of support, increasing the living wage by record amounts, uplifting uh, universal credit, uh, many, many loans and grants to businesses uh, of all kinds, and support for people who are self-isolating, uh, £500 uh, of support in addition to all the other, uh, all the other benefits uh, and support that we give. I do think it's a, a reasonable package, Mr Speaker. I know it's tough uh, for people who have to self-isolate, and I'm glad that uh, after a long time in which he simply attacked NHS uh, tests and trace, he seems now to be coming around and supporting it. Uh, let's just uh, jump in there. Um, <clears throat> this is a, a big problem, isn't it, for the Prime Minister? The, 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 uh, although he's staying at home, and I, you do wonder if his enthusiasm for staying at home is to try and hammer home this public health message, because actually um, that hasn't been getting through. And not everyone who's who's been contacted is staying at home for the full period that they need to, and that's one of the reasons why coronavirus still seems to be spreading. Yeah, no, that's right. And we've moved on now to the virus. Um, what I'm interested in is how Starmer's going to string all this together as a sort of coherent argument. It feels a bit like it's going to be a game of two halves. Um, uh, we'll see whether he can make it work. Um, but interesting that Starmer was also, um, you know, that some of the questions and answers there were about the economy. Um, it's tended to focus on the health side when Labour have done it. Um, Johnson pivoting it to the money that's been given. Um, that's normally uh, the terrain of uh, Ian Blackford. Um, but, yeah, let's let's see how this all hangs together as an argument. <laughs> or, or maybe not. The lockdown measures were passed the other week with Labour votes. 32 of his own MPs broke a three-line whip, and I hear that about 50 of them have joined a WhatsApp group to work out how they're going to oppose him next time round. He should be thanking us for our support, not criticising. And as he well knows, so far as the £500 scheme is concerned, only one in eight workers qualifies for that scheme. The Prime Minister always does this, talking about the number of people he's helping, but ignoring the huge numbers falling through the gap. Members here may be able to afford to self-isolate, but that's not the case for many people across the country who send us here. It's estimated that only about 11% of people self-isolate when they're asked to do so. 11%. That isn't because they don't want to. It's because many don't feel that they can afford to. So, for example, if you're a self-employed plumber, a construction worker, a photographer, and you don't qualify for social security benefits, or you run a small business and you can't work from home, you're likely to see a significant cut to your income if you have to self-isolate. This is affecting many families across the country. Does the Prime Minister recognise that if we want to increase the number of people who isolate, we need to make it easier and affordable for people to do so? Going back to the Prime Minister.
Uh, just jump in there. I mean, this is obviously the thing that uh, the Labour Party wants to push because within uh, seconds of Keir Starmer raising this question about the amount of money available for those self-isolating, uh, out pops a letter from uh, Annalisa Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, uh, writing to uh, Rishi Sunak, asking for more support uh, for the government from the government for those who have fallen through the gaps. Also, interestingly, uh, calling on the government to take um, a series of steps, including reducing the isolation period from 14 days to initial target of 10 days, um, expanded the eligibility of the uh, of the um, uh, extra help, improving communication, which is, you know, anyone can work out what that means, increasing transparency, again, um, it's not totally clear. Um, but, yeah, interesting that Labour sort of leapfrogging. If, I mean, it already sounds like the government is very keen to try and reduce the isolation period. Well, um, as you read on the front page of the Sunday Times, I think about five or six weeks ago. Well, um, quite. But then the beauty of being in opposition is that you can, if you uh, get wind that something's about to happen, you call for it and then you get take credit. Get in first. Budget. And there was actually an incident during uh, the, the first lockdown where um, Starmer was accused of having a mole on one of the calls who in real time got information to him from one of the briefing calls where the, the, the government was telling a third party what they were about to do. That third party was telling the leader of the opposition who promptly put out a press release demanding that that <laughs> very thing happen. But this is, just, you know, That's I mean, politics. we joke about yeah. sort of, yeah, this is this is where Starmer's operation is much better than Corbyn's because they can do this sort of thing. They pump out WhatsApps and emails uh, immediately to political journalists like us and there appears to be some coherent joined up uh, opposition going on. Um, and that's what this is all about. OK, uh, let's go back to the comments. Yeah, Mr Speaker, again, I, I do think that it is uh, extraordinary that he's now uh, coming out in favour of NHS tests and trades when uh, he's continuously attacked it. In fact, the numbers that he gives for the success rate of NHS, uh, of, of the self-isolation programme, uh, in, uh, according to my information, way too low. Uh, but we continue to encourage people to do the right thing. It, it does break... The chain of transmission of the of the disease, and as for the self-employed groups that he uh, mentions, we've given thirteen and a half billion pounds so far in support for self-employed people, uh, uplifted universal credit uh, in the way that I have described. And what we want to do is to get the virus under control, get the R down uh, below one, which is the purpose of these current measures, uh, encourage people to self-isolate in the way that uh, that I am, and thereby stop the disease. From spreading, so that uh, the firms, the professions, the, the businesses that he he talks about can get back to their uh, to something as close to normality as soon as possible. In the meantime, we are giving them every possible support, Mr. Speaker. Uh, one interesting thing, uh, Boris Johnson, there referring to uh, the the. the figures that he has to hand compared to Keir Starmer. You do wonder I mean, who who else is in that room with him, sliding bits of paper across the table um, with extra uh, attack lines? Because obviously normally in the House of Commons he can't have his PPS or whatever sitting behind him, feeding him lines. But um, You're expecting to see a giant hand hoved into view <laughs> at some point. Uh, yeah, completely different. Inspector uh, Gadget folder. style. Yeah. Um, uh, let's go back to Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister must understand there's a huge gap in the system. Yeah. Because if you can't afford to isolate there's little point in being tested or traced. And whilst the Prime Minister and Chancellor won't pay people enough to isolate properly, we learned this week that they can find £21 million of taxpayers' money to pay a go-between to deliver lucrative contracts to the Department of Health. £21 million. I remind the Prime Minister that a few weeks ago he couldn't find that amount of money for free school meals for kids over half-term. Does the Prime Minister think that £21 million to a middleman was an acceptable use of taxpayers' money? 
So we want to procure yeah. Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, when this crisis began, we were being urged by the right honourable gentleman to remove the blockages in our procurement uh, process in order to get PPE. And we were facing, as, as he will remember, a very difficult situation where across the world there were, there were not adequate supplies of PPE. Nobody had uh, enough PPE. We shifted heaven and earth to get 32 billion items of PPE into this country. I'm very proud of what has been achieved. 70% of PPE is now made in this country or capable of being made in this country when it was only 1% at the beginning of the, of the pandemic. And it's entirely uh, typical, I may say, of, uh, of, of Captain Hindsight that he now attacks our efforts to, to procure PPE. Uh, says we, we went too fast. Uh, when uh, he now says that uh, we, we uh, says then that we were not going fast enough, but now says uh, that we went too fast. He should make his mind up. Oh, well, that's a Captain Hindsight there. Captain Hindsight is back. It's, it's been a few weeks. <laughs> now, I think there's something really interesting about this because I think there is a question over how much people, normal people, might worry about this. They're actually just throwing the kitchen sink at this, this huge problem and a sense of proper national crisis back in March and April. The fact that the whole load of money was splashed around or they went to the people they already knew, I'm not sure. Was it all quite by the book? Possibly not. Is the National Order's Office, you know, raising an eyebrow? Yes. Do most people, are most people going to worry about that? Probably not. My read would be the same as yours. I think there's a perfectly reasonable argument to make and Boris Johnson did made a decent fist of making it there, which is, you know, we had to move fast... You know, the bit he didn't say was, by the way, the civil service is blitheringly useless at moving fast at anything and knows next to nothing about the commercial world. And what you do is you get in a bunch of people who do know about it, you chuck a load of money at it and you hope for the best. And frankly, if he was being blunt, you know, £21 million, I mean, that's not even 5p down the back of the sofa in terms of the, the amount of money they're spraying around at the moment. Although, as Keir Starmer pointed out, that is about the same amount of money they needed to do the free yeah, school meals. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but that, I mean no, I'm not sitting here defending them on free school meals. Yeah. That was politically incompetent of the highest order. It was obvious they were going to have to give way and they should have got on with it. Um, but, you know, the, I think I think you're right about the, the big picture here. Well, we've um, had quite the pick and mix today. We've done devolution, lockdown laws, uh, the track and trace, um, uh, funding for people who stay at home, procurement rules, and Marcus Rashford. What will we have in the last question? He talks about hindsight. I say catch up. I called for a circuit breaker. The Prime Minister stood there and said it'd be a disaster. He wasn't going to do it. Then he caught up and did exactly that just a few weeks later. We've now got a longer, harder lockdown as a result of his delay, so I won't take that from him. Last week, the Prime Minister couldn't explain, he couldn't explain how his government ended up paying £150 million on contracts that didn't deliver a single piece of usable PPE. This week, he's effectively defending the paying of £21 million on a contract with no oversight. This morning, the Independent National Audit Office concluded that the government's approach was, in their words, diminished public transparency. They reported that more than half of all contracts relating to the pandemic, Mr Speaker, that's totalling £10.5 billion, were handed out without competitive tender, and that suppliers with political connections were ten times more likely to be awarded contracts. Mr Speaker, we're eight months into this crisis and the government is still making the same mistakes. Can the Prime Minister give a cast-iron assurance that from now on, from now on, all government contracts will be subject to proper process with full transparency and accountability? I mean, it's not a zinger, that, but let's see what the Prime Minister says. Mr Speaker, all government contracts are, of course, going to be published and uh, 
uh, in a due way and are, are already uh, being published. But again, I must say, I think it's extraordinary that uh, he now attacks the government for securing PPE in huge quantities. And I, I want to thank again all the people who are involved in that effort, uh, Lord Dighton and literally thousands of others who built up a mountain of PPE against uh, any further crisis. And uh, he talks about uh, transparency and, and moving uh, too fast to secure uh, contracts. As you should know, the shadow chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster actually uh, wrote to the government attacking us for failing to approach various companies, including a football agent uh, who was apparently offering to supply ventilators, and a historical clothing manufacturing company who, uh, who apparently make a, who's offering to make 175 gowns per week and whose current uh, range includes uh, 16th century silk bodices. Uh, again, Mr. Speaker, you know, at the time uh, he bashed the government uh, for not moving fast enough. Uh, it's absolutely absurd that he's now tapped in hindsight. He's now once again uh, trying to score party political points, score political points by attacking us for moving too fast. I'm proud of what we did to secure huge quantities of PPE during a pandemic. Any government would do the same. I think uh, the common speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, they're struggling. Uh, the problem with uh, Boris Johnson being on... You can't intervene on him when he's sitting at the bottom of a well, can you? can't yeah. tell him to shut up. Uh, um, Keir Starmer looking quizzical at the end, though. He was called Captain Hindsight again. I mean, once again, and I know, at the risk of repeating ourselves, we do this every week on, on uh, when we do PMQs Unpacked, I'm still not sure what the point of all of that from Keir Starmer was. No, I mean, his big crescendo was demanding full transparency and accountability, and you just sort of think, oh, my God, man. I mean, there was a moment where he almost seized upon something. He's saying, you know, you need to catch up, Boris Johnson. Catch up with me. Then he caught up. Call him Captain Catch-Up. Captain Catch-Up. At least respond in kind. And he doesn't. He doesn't think terribly well on his feet. He doesn't know how to coin a memorable phrase. And frankly, um, Boris Johnson actually answered the questions a little bit more directly than he does sometimes, and we'll probably get a bit of credit for that. And he had a few catchphrases. I mean, the only thing missing from this performance, really, was Dylan the dog hoving into view, <laughs> which would have given it that, you know, working from home feel. Which would or have... like the, the guy on BBC News when his children came in, although um, I'm not sure that room's big enough for all of Boris Johnson's children. Uh, right, uh, I, I, I wonder what Ian Blackford, leader of the SNP, is going to talk about today. We now come to the leader of the SNP, Ian Blackford. Mr Speaker, and can I wish the Prime Minister and all those that are self-isolating well. Mr Speaker, over the past 20 years, Westminster has imposed an extreme Brexit, an illegal war in Iraq, £9,000 tuition fees, the Windrush scandal, the rape clause, the bedroom tax, and a decade of Tory austerity cuts which have pushed millions into poverty. At the same time, the Scottish Parliament has delivered free prescriptions, free tuition fees, free personal care, free bus travel, the baby box, the Scottish child payment, world-leading climate action, all of which makes Scotland a fairer and more equal place to live. Does the Prime Minister understand why the people in Scotland think it is him and his Parliament that are the real disaster? Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, I, I respectfully refer the right honourable gentleman to the answer I gave to the leader of the opposition. I, I may say that I do think that his policies of wanting to break up the union uh, are a disaster. And I wish, he would, I wish he and his party would focus on the real priorities of the 
people of Scotland on education, on health, on tackling crime and, the, and, and housing and the issues that matter to all our people. That's what a devolved government should do. I was very proud to, to run a devolved administration and that's what we focused on. We didn't endlessly go on about constitutional change and the breakup of the UK. Well, there we are. That's, that's the, um, I mean, as a performance, Ian Blackford reading out his shopping list of uh, bad things what the Tories have done and good things what the SNP have done. It's sort of better politics, isn't it? That's yeah, the sort of I mean, that's that a great clip. Well it's a, it's a very good clip. It's something you could easily put on, on straight on Twitter. Um, and it speaks totally to his base. I mean, and, and hilariously trolling Boris Johnson. Blackford's often sitting at home on Zoom. <laughs> Today, he's in the chamber while Boris Johnson is at the bottom of a well. Um, I mean, what Boris Johnson could more honestly have replied if he'd wanted to get really stuck in was what... what uh, my, what Parliament down here has delivered for you is a sack full of cash, which has allowed you to afford all those things that you just read out. There's quite um, a lot of free in... Uh, yeah, free in, this in and that. Black, well, who's paying for that? Yeah. Quite a lot of it's being paid for by people in London and the rest of England. Well, there we are. Ian Blackford uh, making the case for Scottish independence at PMQs. Who'd have thought? Uh, that's PMQs unpacked. Thank you, Tim Shipman, for, uh, for doing that, pausing the action and trying to explain what's going on. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription. To get that, go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.